Good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater Conklin. My name is Jeff. I'm serving as one of the campus pastors here. So glad and excited you came here. Enjoy the spring rain we're hearing on the roof right now. Good thing you're not in Buffalo where we get snow, right? So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, your, your hard copy of God's Word if you have one. If you have an electronic device, you can bring up the Bridgewater app or we have the U version that we like to use as well. If you would like a Bible and you don't have one, there's hard copies on the welcome desk. Uh, every, all the scripture we're, we're going to use is going to be on the screen today, so you can sit back and watch. But I love to see people and love to hear the uh, pages turning. I just want to say before we jump into what we're going to talk about today, that it's applicable to everybody, both men and women, children as well. Um, but this is a story about David and his fall from grace. And so I'm really going to be pushing hard and putting my finger in the chest of guys because I'm putting in the chest uh, on myself as well. So women, you get to listen, and, uh, but it, it's applicable to you too, but I'm going to be really talking to the guys quite a bit today. I just want to make a comment. Last week, Pastor Tim used an illustration about a bat in his house, and he was a, sounded like a scared little junior high girl screaming and running around. And I thought to myself, why does he have to worry? Usually bats get caught in your hair. Hey, you got a good one out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Why? So anyway, okay. Now that that's over, <laughs> this is week four of the series, A Tale of Three Kings. Next week, Tim will be back and he'll finish out this series. And then after that, on December 11th, we start our Christmas series. Yeah. Can you believe it? We'll be in on December 11th and the title is Hopes and Fears. And Tim did mention the invite cards. Grab one on your way out. We have four services for Christmas Eve, two on Friday the 23rd at 4.30 and 6, and two on Saturday the 24th, 3.30 and 5. Uh, like Tim said, begin to pray and invite some of your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, anybody to come and be a part of what we're doing around here. So before we jump in, I, I just want to uh, I gotta start off with an illustration uh, that will help us close the service later on. I'm going to pull out some items here. And uh, they're all, they all have something in common, like I got a hockey stick uh, and, a, and a baseball bat. They all have something in common. Now, there's going to be several things, but uh, one that we're going to use today. So a hockey stick, uh, a baseball bat, and it's not a real one. It's a plastic one. It's one, yeah, it's a plastic one. I got a drill driver uh, that gets used, a hammer, um, a softball, and uh, a golf ball as well. I'll leave the golf ball in there. How about a... A, uh, a tape measure that I use, a baseball, also a uh, eight ball from a, from a pool set. All these items have something in common. I also got a, a hockey puck, needed those pliers, and a Phillips head screwdriver. So think about it. We will get back to it. Um, one young man in the first service pretty much got it. So I don't know if he got, the, got what we're talking about, but he understood what all these things have in common. So just think about it, and we'll get back to it in a few minutes. We ended up last week looking at the rise of David and through the struggles and trials and the hard times that, were, that God placed him and walked him through. He still persevered, and he found his way to the throne to be the king of Israel. And all along the way, during those hard times, like we heard about last week, he continually leaned on God over and over and over. He leaned on the character of God, and it ended up, it led him to be courageous where others had failed to be courageous and led him to be merciful, like when his men wanted to kill Saul, where others would have been vengeful. 
See, when I consider David's life, I see two very distinct different sections of his life. The first section from when he was younger to about the age 49 or 50. We don't know exactly how old he was then. And then the second section of his life from 49 to 50 on to the end. There's two distinct sections. And the first section was when he was very bold. That's when he was bold and he fought the lion and he fought the bear and he, t- he fought and killed Goliath. It was also when he refused to let his men kill Saul when he went into that cave and to relieve himself. And they said, we can get him. And he said, no, he was very bold and he was very merciful back then. You can see him during that time continually leaning into God, leaning into his character, fully trusting him for what he had promised and truly being the man after God's own heart. It was during that time that he you know, was running and hiding in caves. And, and it seemed like his... his um, his rise to greatness and power seemed to be in spite of all those hard times. Because he had a lot of hard times that he was going through. It's like, well, he made it there in spite of that. But I would submit to you that it was those difficult trials that were the very path that led him to greatness and power. See, we as Americans and we as Christians, we really try hard to get out of hard times. So often, I'll ask for prayer. Someone will say, hey, would you please pray for me? We're in the middle of this really hard time, you know, with where finances are broken, that car or washer or whatever it is which, is, which is necessary to pray about that. But I think that those hard times are what make us who we are. Right. Tim mentioned uh, being in Canada, and you know that I also go to Canada, those wilderness trips, and we portage. We put the canoes on our backs and we go down these trails. One of them is called the Mother, and it's three miles long. It's pretty, it's pretty hard to carry a canoe a thousand feet, let alone three miles. And we have guys and guys that break down in the middle. But when you persevere through, you know what, you know what you're made of. And see, I think those trials and struggles that David went through were the very path that led him and got him to his greatness and power. It was because of those things that he continually leaned into God, trusted him for who he was and what he said he was and for his courage and strength at least for a time. See, when, <clears throat> at least for a time. See, what we're looking at today is not the fairy tale ending of David because David went through some really hard times and, it's, and, he was in a, he, and while he was going through those hard times, he was, uh, became the man after God's own heart. And what we're going to look at today is not the fairy tale ending of his life, but the tragic downturn of this once mighty man. And this, was the, this is the beginning of the second half of his life there around 49, age 49 or 50. It's where he did not completely lean into God and not completely follow him. See, it would appear that as God continued to bless David and his kingdom, that he began to slip. He began to relax and slip in some areas that were important in some moral issues. It was quite evident and clear that he was a great leader for a time, but we're going to see today that something happened. Something happened and he was unwilling or unable to restrain his own desires, unable to lead his own desires and it resulted in him not leading himself well, not leading his kingdom well, and we'll see later on today, not leading his family well. So you should be in 2 Samuel 11. And 2 Samuel 11 is where we begin to see the fade in David's life, which influenced the decisions he made. So look at verse 1 here on the screen. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, 
but David remained in Jerusalem. So we're going to focus on this last phrase here for just a moment or two. David remained in Jerusalem. See, here it seems as though David was beginning to neglect his duties. The text doesn't say it specifically, but it kind of alludes to the fact. Look at this. David sent Joab. But it was in the springtime when kings go off to war. What did David do? He sent Joab with the king's men. He let Joab do what he himself should be doing. And he didn't go. Maybe he was tired. Maybe he thought to myself, you know something? I fought enough battles. I got this covered. Things are, this is an easy one. I'm just going to take a break. We don't know exactly, but the author makes it clear that he was not where kings should be. He was beginning to leave, lead a life of entitlement. He was being passive, no longer being courageous in battle, no longer willing to attack someone who was doing work or was working and defying against his God. Instead, he was back at the palace sitting in ease and in comfort. Now, we do know that at an earlier battle that's recorded in 2 Samuel 21, David almost lost his life. And it was after that battle that his men said, listen, David, we don't want this to ever happen again. We cannot lose the king. So we don't want you to go to, we don't want you to, go to war anymore. But whatever the reason, he became a different man. And he started showing signs of slipping in some areas where he should not have slipped. So guys, you ever been there? Ever let your time with God slip because everything's going great? You're living a dream and everything's going great. I like when people say, you're living, I'm living a dream. And I say, that's someone's dream. It's not mine, but I'm living a dream. Ever been there? You know, I got this. Things are going great. You know, things are going real good. Ever describe you guys? Does it describe how, how you may be leading your family in the past? Or maybe you're leading your family right now. You know, things are going really good. I really don't need God. We'll, we'll come every once in a while. So describe how you're leading your wife or your children. What about your personal time with God? Let me tell you about a young man. I'm going to call him Alex. It's about it's 2016. We're back at Ross Corners Baptist Church before we transferred over to Bridgewater. And five senior, senior guys from Vestal High School came to start coming to the youth group. And they went to snow camp at Word of Life and they received Christ. They trusted Christ. And when they came back, they wanted they wanted to be discipled. They asked me to, to disciple them in a discipleship group. So we started meeting on a regular basis and these young men were on fire and they, they kept on coming regularly. But one of them slipped away and never came back. That, that, this young man I'm calling Alex. So I asked about him with the other guys and they said, well, he's, um, we don't know where he is. Well, I ran into him, scheduled a lunch with him and I said, Alex, what's going on? I haven't seen you at church or discipleship. He goes, Pastor Jeff, man, things are going great. I graduated from high school and I got into the college that I wanted to get into and I'm studying for, the, for my career and I'm dating this girl. We're going to get married. Things are going really, really well. I really don't need God right now. And I thought to myself and I said, Alex, you got to be careful, man. Satan can use that against you. You, you got to be careful. Well, to my knowledge, he never came back. But about a year and a half ago, I preached at Vestal and Alex came that day. And he walks up to me and he goes, Pastor Jeff, you're right. You were right. I got to be here. And so to my knowledge, he's still a regular person. He regularly attends Vestal now. Look at this, this phrase here on the screen. Living for God in hard times is difficult, right? Amen. Living for God in hard times is difficult. But living for God when you have everything you could possibly want is almost impossible. Living for God when you have almost everything you want 
It's almost impossible because what do I need God for? Everything's going great. See, David was thinking, we're not sure what he was thinking, but something began to fade in his life and he started to neglect his duties. Maybe he had a good reason. I mean, whenever we don't do something, we always spin and say, well, I've got a good reason. It's, it's the yeah, but syndrome. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. See, there's usually always a good reason for doing something we shouldn't. Maybe David, David believed what his men said. You're too indis- I'm too indispensable. I'm the king. I can't go out there and get killed. Maybe he believed he was special so he didn't have to live by everyone else's rules. Look at the first point here. He was passive in leading himself. This is how it could be explained possibly. He was passive in leading himself. What does it mean to be passive in leading yourself? A person who doesn't lead himself is someone who follows others or follows his own desires. Well, what's the big deal? Follow your own desires. We're told to follow our hearts, right? Well, a person who is leading himself well and not passive directs others and leads his own desires. David, it seems like he was following others and following his own desires. He let his men lead him. He let his men tell him what he should or should not do. He he lets others take the responsibility that he should be doing militarily first here and then with the the decision he made with Bathsheba and then pretty soon you're going to see at home as well where he did not step up and do the right thing where it was needed. You ever been guilty of that, guys? Women, you ever been guilty of that? You ever let someone else lead where you should have been leading? Could it be said of you that you are passive in leading yourself? See, David once stopped 600 men from killing his enemy. Now he's freely giving in to the enemy of his desires. Look at the next verse here. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, he had his nap, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told this. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So let's stop right there. We don't know who brought this to him. It was probably one of his messengers, but this was a wise messenger. Because in this verse alone, there are two reasons. Two reasons why David should stay away. Don't touch, leave her alone. Number one, Eliam's daughter, the daughter of Eliam. Oh, big deal, who's Eliam? Well, Eliam's dad is Othniel I think you got that right. One of David's wisest and most trusted advisors. So Othniel, the guy that David spends time with and gets counsel with, one of his most trusted and wisest advisor, this is Eliam, his son. So this is Othniel's granddaughter. You spend a lot of time with him, David, stay away. It's his granddaughter. And number two, she's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Bathsheba married Uriah. Well, who's Uriah? He was one of his 30 most mightiest and most loyal warriors. I suspect that Uriah was in that cave and wanted to kill Saul back when, in the last chapter or two. And David said, no. And guess what, David? Uriah is fighting in your stead right now. Don't touch her. Leave her alone. There's two good reasons. Besides the fact that she's married, besides the fact that David's married and, and adultery and all the rest of that stuff, here's two more reasons. But none of that mattered to David. Why? Because he wasn't leading himself. He was letting his desires lead him. 
He was being passive. Look at verse 4 and 5 on the screen here. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Next verse. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now the rest of the chapter, we're not going to take time to read it, but David does everything in his power to try and cover up this sin. David, as king of Israel, was given influence and power by God because he was king of Israel. And David used that power and influence to try and hide the sin that he had committed and eventually had Uriah killed. See, as king, God had given David this influence and power to use, not for himself, but for the betterment of his kingdom, to help his kingdom, to help the people that he was the king over, not for himself. But he used it for himself. You see, guys, God makes husbands stronger than wives, not so that you can get what you want, not so, not so that you can bully your wife and make her do what you want her to do or get what you want, but God makes men stronger than women so that we can take care of them, so that we can take care of our children, so we can help that widow on the street, we can help that, uh, your elderly gr- uh, mother-in-law or father-in-law or whoever it is. God gives some of you the great ability of managing money, not so that you can get rich, yeah, sure, it's helpful, but so that you can help other people through hard, difficult financial times. There are people in this room that God has given the ability of working well with their hands, building houses, working on cars, doing IT stuff with, with computers, not so that for the betterment of yourself, but so you can help other people for the advancement of God's kingdom and helping others. There's all types of things that God has, has blessed us with, not for, not for us to bless ourselves, but so that we can help other people. God's given most of us money, not so that we can spend it on ourselves, but so we can give it away and advance God's kingdom. See, David was using his position of influence and power selfishly. He was using it for himself rather than for the glory of God and others. Husbands, dads, have you ever used your God-given influence and power selfishly? Man, it's got to stop. Come talk to me. Come talk to Tim. Let, let us help you. I mean, I, the reason I can help you is because I have done that and I know what it's like and I know how to get out of it. See, David tried every possible trick in the book to cover his sin and it did not work. So when he was confronted by Nathan, this is what he said. Look at chapter 12, verses one. We're gonna read one through five here. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said this. Now, let me just say this. It, David thought he had hidden, hidden it, but obviously he didn't hide it from God. And here's what happened. There were two men in a certain town. So Nathan comes in and tells them this story. There are two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept with him. It sounds like my daughter's cat. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man. He took the neighbor's cat and prepared it for one. That sounds awful. Took the neighbor's sheep and prepared it for one who had came, who had come to him. 
David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Now, when I was a teenager, uh, an evangelist came in the next verse. He said, Nathan stuck his pointy finger into the chest of David and said, you are that man. And that's exactly right. David proclaimed death to this person. He proclaimed his own death. All because somewhere in the past, courage was replaced with comfort. He became passive, sitting at home, not doing what he should have. And his mercy was replaced with judgment. Instead of being merciful to the man and trying to work it out, he wanted to strike him down and kill him, and it was himself. You see, after God confronted David and he loses the child that he had with Bathsheba, he repented. He repented and God forgave him. But after that happened, something inside of David broke. I don't know what it is. I, I, I've never been there. And from that point forward, he was a shell of his former self. It's Thursday morning. I was out getting ready to, uh, to go to my in-laws, and a neighbor came over and told me another neighbor had lost their son on Thursday morning. 18-year-old boy on 1 o'clock on Thursday morning had died in an automobile accident. Four young boys in the, in the car, and he was the only guy who died. And I got to talk to the dad that day, and I got to talk to the mom yesterday, and they're broken. Something inside them has broken. I'm sure David and Bathsheba were broken. I, I, I've never been there, so I can't, I can't, I don't understand. But my friend Lorraine, who you've seen on videos, um, her daughter was murdered 10 years ago. And uh, she was in my youth group. And uh, um, Lorraine was broken. David, at this point in his life, something inside him broke. He stopped leading his home. He stopped leading his family. He stopped leading his kingdom. Check out this phrase here. When you are unwilling to lead yourself, or you can't lead yourself, it's impossible to lead others well. David was unwilling to lead himself, and therefore he could not lead others well. Look at the second point here. His passivity bled into his leadership of others. And we see this in 2 Samuel 13. We're not going to read it. Let me, just let me just talk you through it, what happened in 2 Samuel uh, 13. David's oldest son was Amnon. And David had a thing for his half-sister Tamar. Now, just a little side note. David had multiple wives. The kings back then had multiple wives. It was expected that they had multiple wives. God did not okay it. He still condemned it. If you were to do a, if you were to do a study of Levitical law in Deuteronomy through Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see that God condemned it and said not to do it, but David did it. So he has multiple wives. So I'm talking about half-sisters here because of that. So Amnon has a thing for his half-sister Tamar, who's beautiful and is driving him insane with lust, and he's losing sleep over it. So much sleep that his cousin Jonadab notices it. Says, David, he says, Amnon, what's going on? You're the king's son. Why are you losing sleep? And he says to his cousin, man, it's because of Tamar. She's beautiful and I love her and she's ignoring me. And Jonadab says, I got just the thing to do. I want you to fake being sick. Ask your dad, King David, to have Tamar come and take care of you. And so Amnon does it. Now, it's, it's interesting to me that David doesn't notice what's going on here. He doesn't pick up that something's, something's amiss here. He doesn't notice that his son's not feeling well and all this thing's going on. But unfortunately, Jonadab's scheme works. 
Tamar comes in to fix Amnon food. Amnon kicks everyone out. He asks her to sleep with him. She refuses and he rapes her. And then he kicks her out and she leaves a torn and destitute woman because she was raped by her half-brother. Absalom, Tamar's older brother, one of David's other son from another wife, asked Tamar this question, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 20-21. Her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Has he had sex with you? Be quiet for now. Be quiet for now, Absalom says. In other words, I'm going to take care of this. Be quiet, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Next verse. When King David heard all this, he was furious. David hears about the rape of his daughter by one of his sons. And what does he do? He's furious. Okay? And he's furious. He does nothing. He gets really mad, but he doesn't do anything. He does absolutely nothing. Guys, fathers, can you imagine your daughter getting raped and you sitting around doing nothing? I can't imagine. If one of my daughters got raped, I mean, God forgive me and God protect that person who did it. I'm a grandfather. If my grandson got, got hurt by someone, I'm, I mean, I'm going to spend time in jail probably. But David doesn't do anything. At least he could have done and taken the baseball bat to the kid or something. I mean, at least go down there and do something and challenge him. But David does nothing. He does nothing. Look at point two again. His passivity bled into the leadership of others. He needed to lead his son. He needed to go down there and talk to him and make, get it worked out. He needed, he needed to, Absalom, Amnon needed to pay for the penalty of this. He doesn't even go take care of Tamar. He does nothing. The shame of his sin caused him to not only be passive in his leadership, but also to overlook the sin in his family. The shame of his sin caused him to overlook the sin in his family. He ignored it. One of the biggest complaints that I hear from non-church-going people about church-going people, they call us hypocrites. Why? They say because church people judge us for sins that they are doing and that they are ignoring. Friends, if you have unrepentant or sins in your lives that you're ignoring, one of the, it's one of the biggest hindrances for people to coming to Christ. When we have unrepentant sin and we have sin in our lives that we're ignoring, we lose our influence. See, that's not what David's problem is here. David had repented. If you were to go to 2 Samuel 12, you see that he repented and God forgave him. David wasn't crippled by his sin. He was crippled by the shame of his sin. And because of that, he overlooked the sin in his family's life. It had the same effect. He never forgave himself because he didn't believe that God had forgiven him. And it paralyzed him from doing and dealing with the sin in his family's life. That ever happened to you? Do you have something in your past that you're so ashamed of? You don't want anyone to know. And it affects how you parent, how you lead, how you do stuff. As parents, it affects how you lead yourself today. Does it cause you to be passive in your leadership of your family or of yourself? So David sat passively by and overlooked the sin of his son. What a drastic and stark, dramatic contrast from the David we read about from his earlier years. When you consider the courage and mercy that he had back then, it's almost like it was a different David. 
You see, sometimes we think that mercy is not confronting them because we don't want to judge them. When we do not confront them, we're actually setting them up for deeper judgment. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace among them. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Warn those who are sinning. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Because David, next verse. This phrase right here, live in peace with each other. Living in peace means challenging someone who's a fellow believer about sin that they're living in. Because if you don't challenge them, you're setting them up for greater judgment later. Because David was unwilling to challenge and confront his son's sin, he was setting him up for greater judgment. And we'll see what that is here in just a few moments. If he had been the father that he should have been, if he had been leading himself well, he could have led his family well, what happens next would not have happened. Look at the next verse here, 2 Samuel 13, 23. Two years later, remember Absalom said to Tamar, don't say anything yet, just wait. Two years later, revenge is served cold. Best served cold. When Absalom's sheep shears were at Bela Hazar near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come. Hey, all the king's sons were have a party. Next verse. Absalom said, said, went to the king and said, your servant has had shears come. Will the king and his attendants please join me? King David, come and join this party. No, the king said, all of us should not go. We would only be a burden to you. There's too much of us. Your wife couldn't feed us. There'd be too much. We're not going to come. Although Absalom urged him, he still refused to go, but he didn't. So he gave, King David gave him his blessing. Next verse, then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked him, why should he go with you? You know what I think of, go back once, I know what I think of when I, when I see this. It's like that horror movie and you're screaming at the TV, no, don't go downstairs. Don't go out, in the, uh, out behind the chainsaws in the, in the shed. You're going to get killed. Oh, next verse. But Absalom urged him, so he went, sent Amnon and the rest of the king's son. You see, after Tamar was raped by Amnon, she went to live with Absalom. Two years later, he devises this scheme to get back at Amnon. But he needs his father's help. So he talks to David, just like we read. And Absalom gets, and Amnon gets sent by King David. And again, why doesn't David pick up on this? He knows what's going on between his sons. He seems to be totally absent and totally disconnected. Doesn't find it suspicious. Amnon goes, and lo and behold, Amnon is killed by his brother Absalom. And what does David do now? Nothing. He does absolutely nothing. I mean, how can David punish Absalom for the murder of a rapist when David didn't take care of it earlier? He didn't deal with it then. And also David murdered Uriah. So how can he condemn his son for murdering a rapist when he killed a good guy? He couldn't do it. David was disconnected. He was passive. He let it go. Absalom becomes estranged from his dad and eventually leads to a civil war on the nation of Israel. And instead of having a great relationship with his son Absalom, his son is a constant reminder of his failure to lead and unwillingness to do anything about the sins of his sons. You ever been there, guys? Is there something in your past 
that may be causing you to do something similar in refusing to confront, refusing to challenge, refusing to lead well. Look at verse uh, the f- number four here on the screen. His shame kept him from moving forward. His shame kept him from challenging and encouraging and leading well. It led to a passive, absent father and a lousy king. Chapter 14, we're not going to get into, but we see Joab, the man we heard about in chapter 11, his right-hand man, try to step into the vacuum of leadership that David had left. He leads where David won't, and he works it out for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem But David still does not want to go and refuses to see Absalom. And he figures, I'm not going to judge him because that's mercy. Man, and it it hurt Absalom. Here's one of the tragic things. It appears as though David doesn't love his kids. And yet we read that David wept over his kids. He wept over his kids because he loved them. Pastor Bob gave me this quote. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. See, here's what I think is most tragic. The message David sends to his kids is indifference. It's not love, it's not hate, it's indifference. I don't care. The message he sends is dad doesn't care. Dad doesn't praise me, he doesn't challenge me, he never talks to me, he he doesn't want to come and see me, he simply does not care. Guys, your kids need to know that you care. And sometimes... They need to know that you care because you challenge them and you discipline them and you set boundaries for them. There are times also love them and praise them and encourage them. But children thrive with boundaries. They need to know what's right and what's wrong, what they can and cannot do. And David didn't do it. His shame drove him to passivity and not only left his family in a lurch, it left the nation of Israel in a lurch and it was was bad news. So where did it start? How did it happen? It started when he traded comfort, courage for comfort. He gave up fighting to stay home. He traded righteousness for self-pleasure. He didn't listen, and he brought that woman into his house. He traded authority, his authority for a moment of pleasure in his confidence, and God was overwhelmed by deep shame. And his bold obedience disappeared into a, into a cloud of passivity. You see, because David didn't lead himself well, because of the shame from the sins of his past, he disqualified himself from leading himself, from leading his family, from leading his kingdom, and from being the king, and he lost the kingdom. Now, in the old days, I would say, well, I hope you learn from that. Let's sing a song and pray and go home. I hope you can learn something from that. But if I were to do that today, I wouldn't be a pastor worth my salt. So where do we go from here? What's the next step? Now the question is, so what? What can we learn? What can we do? How can we use it in our lives? So let's go back to the beginning. And all these items here that I have, I had a motorcycle on the screen, I forgot the reference. Is there anybody, you have any ideas of what these, these items have in common? Yes? Cool. That's great. That's, that's not what I'm thinking of, but that's really good. Awesome. Thank you. You want to preach next time? <laughs> Somebody else. What are, what are some of the things they have in common? Okay. So here's what I was driving at. That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just figured they're all useless without action. Useless without action. Okay. He's on the right path. 
Cool. Among other things, like this young lady said, all these objects are passive. Okay? This pool ball, this hockey stick, this hockey puck, they can do nothing on their own. They need someone else to do it. Their actions are dictated and started by someone or something else. They're passive. They just sit around and do nothing. The hockey stick, the baseball, the, this drill gun, you know, someone has to use it. Uh, the softball, someone throws it. Baseball, the tape measure, so on, hockey puck I mentioned, hammer. All of these actions are dictated by or started by someone or something else. Each one of their main characteristics is passivity. Its vocation is to be acted upon, be pushed around with or by someone or something else. Okay, that's what all of the The pool ball sits on that green felt and waits for the cue or something else to be directed by a cue stick, a cue ball to hit it by someone who directs it. Then there, are, then there are items or individuals or people who do the pushing, who do the directing, who make up those things. Their chief characteristic is not passivity. It could be called domination. Or it, could be, it could be called influence or power. These are the individuals that come up with the plans, with the schemes, with the directions on how to move these items that I have in this bag or here on the, on the floor here, or even the guitar or the keyboard as well. They, they come up with these plans, they come up with these ideas, and then they oppose those schemes, their will, on those items. Early in David's life, he was one of those guys who came up with those schemes. He came up with the schemes on how to move the hockey puck. He came up with the plans with his guys, you can do this, don't do this, and he imposed them on other people. And as we learn later in life, he became a hockey puck that was acted upon. He was letting others direct and impose their will on, their will on, on him. So here's my question for us. Here's my question, guys, for us today. Which one describes you? Are you the hockey puck or are you this um, passive eight ball waiting for someone to direct you? Waiting for somebody to tell you what to do? Or are you the person doing the directing? You're the person imposing your plans, your wills on somebody else. Do you let someone else step in and lead your family, lead your wife, lead your children? Consider it this way. You're planning a, a hunting trip, a vacation, a fishing trip, whatever it is. You're planning something big. Maybe you've been, uh, you want to build a barn out back to put your equipment in. Maybe you want to, you've been asked to build a building downtown for an office building. Maybe you're planning for your retirement. You put hours and hours and hours of time into all these things. You're in charge of a sales team at work. Lots of time goes into that, which is all good. It's all necessary. It, days, weeks, hours, years, it's all necessary to, to be done. So let me ask you this question. I had to ask myself this question because this is what came back to bite me. I almost lost my relationship with my girls. How much time in comparison do you put into planning for the spiritual growth of your children? You're planning for a vacation. How much time do you put in comparison to spiritual growth of your children? How much time do you put into teaching your children right from wrong? Guys, if you have some boys, how much time do you spend teaching them how to treat women and how not to treat women? If you have daughters, how much time do you treat them teaching them this is what a guy should and should not do, how he should treat you? How much time do you treat your wife making her feel special? 
So often we let, the areas of our, of these, we let these areas in our life slip and we become passive. We let other people direct and impose their will upon us. Let me make it even more personal. Are you unwilling to lead your spouse because you feel you're a failure yourself? And rather than do something about your past and doing something about what's going on in your life right now, you never talk about it. You, your roommates at home never talk about it or you spend hours constantly arguing about it. Are you passive in parenting because you don't feel you have the grounds to tell your kids what they can and cannot do because of a sin in your past? Are you unwilling to biblically correct your children because we don't want to judge them? Besides, I don't want to judge them. They, they, then they'll know what I did. Are you leading your family towards godliness or towards comfort and passivity? Do your children know the cost of obedience to God? Are they learning? It's okay not to go to church. We were out late last night. We, we're not going to go to church this week because we're going somewhere else. Are they learning that it's too costly and too inconvenient to obey God? Listen, man, today's the day where we got to step up and make some changes. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat on the throne and gives us the ability. He forgives our sins. He lets us remove that shame from our sins and our past so that we can live our, we can live our lives without passivity. We can live our lives and, and lead ourselves well. It says here, go to the next verse. Throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles. That's what he tells us to do. That's what he allows us to do, to throw off that sin, that shame that we're being burdened down by. He gives us the ability to lead and parent well and to be the man and woman of God that we really are. Listen, we can't lead ourselves well until we're leading yourself. You can't lead yourself. You can't lead others well until you lead yourself well. And we can't lead ourselves well until you let Jesus lead you. Like that young man who accepted Christ today, we need to give our lives to Christ and let him be the forgiver of our sins. Now, this is what I want to close with. When you came in, you found a three by five card on your seat. This is what I want to challenge and encourage you to do today. Go to the next slide. There are two questions that I want you to consider. I, you want to write these questions down, write the answers down, take them home and pray over them. If you want Tim or I to talk, talk to you about it, you can put your name on it and drop it in the blue box or you can put your phone number on it, however you want to do that. But here's the question. In what area of your life do you remain passive where instead you should be taking initiative? Where are you passive where you should be taking initiative and what's your next step? How are you going to, how are you going to change it? And number two, in what area of your life do you still feel shame from the past sins? Identify that area and trust God's forgiveness. Take a moment to write those down. And don't leave without talking to someone if you have that guilty feeling. Let Jesus be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for the way that uh, we can learn. Thank you for the stories and the things we learned about David today. Even though he had some hard times, he went through some hard struggles, we can learn from his mistakes. And I pray for the man or the 
the father that's sitting here today that's struggling and saying, man, I need to make some changes. I need to be a better man. I need to be a better father. I need to lead my family well. God, help them to step forward. Help them to step up. To trust Jesus for their, for their Savior. They haven't done that yet. To make those changes that they need to make. For that wife that's sitting here saying, man, I need to support my husband better. Help her to make that change. For that boy, that son or daughter who says, man, I need to, uh, I need to get behind my mom and dad. I need to allow them to lead me. I encourage us, encourage them. Give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen.